In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. Every pass, shot, and dribble is immediately consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, blood, and tears, real legacies. Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? You already know when and where to find these moments of unscripted, pure entertainment. Don't miss one minute of the action. Tune into the NBA playoffs on ESPN and ABC. Got my Prevnar 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk? Get vaccinated. But but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't give Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. Moments like seeing my son's team cheer him on mean a lot to me. But after being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer or MBC, which is breast cancer that is spread to other parts of the body, they mean even more. I take Ibrance, Palbociclib. Ibrance 125 milligram tablets with an aromatase inhibitor is for adults with HR positive HER2 negative NBC as the first hormonal based therapy. Ask your doctor about Ibrance and visit Ibrance.com. Ibrance may cause low white blood cell counts that may lead to serious infections. Ibrance may cause severe inflammation of the lungs. Both of these can lead to death. Tell your doctor right away if you have new or worsening symptoms, including trouble breathing, shortness of breath, cough, or chest pain. Before taking Ibrance, tell your doctor if you have fever, chills, or other signs of infection, liver or kidney problems, are or plan to become pregnant, or are breastfeeding. Common side effects include low red blood cell and low platelet counts, infections, tiredness, nausea, sore mouth, abnormalities in liver blood tests, diarrhea, hair thinning or loss, vomiting, rash, and loss of appetite. I'm Erica Alexander. And I'm Whitney Dow. Welcome to Reparations, The Big Payback, a production of Color Farm Media, iHeartRadio, and the Black Effect Podcast Network. I like that poem, Invictus, and it talks about being bloody but unbowed. And that, from the minute I read that poem in elementary school, I made that my creed. I may be bloody, but every time you knock me down, I'm going to be like that punch clown. I got to get up. I felt that, and maybe I felt that because I was this orphan. And sometimes I knew I had to keep my head down. But all of those lessons I tried to teach my kids, not so much about sitting down talking to y'all, but letting you see me live through that. And I think that I got a pretty strong group of kids that expected that they had certain expectations of them. Wait, Erica, is that your mom? Uh Uh-huh. Now I know where you get such self-confidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's Sammy Jean Amy Holman Alexander, and I am her daughter, and she is my North Star. She has three last names, 
because she's had a lot of lives, not because she's Liz Taylor or Kim Kardashian. She's like a cat. And I think she's on her seventh right now. Yeah, that's a lot of lives and a lot of names. Did she also give you the great at the end of yours? <laughs> no, but she once fought a teacher that wanted me to take it off my papers. I used to sign all my <laughs> papers in class with Eric Alexander the Great. Now, she likes all that. But Whitney, when we started this rockin' reparations adventure, we said that we would talk more about our origin story. So I decided to talk to my mother. And she's like a Walkman. You can push play and she's off to the races. She's a real griot. And she remembers everything. But her origin story, it's pretty awesome. She's one of 11. I think I've told you a little bit of, about her. She was her mother's last child. She was born in Carnac, Texas. That's where Lady Bird Johnson is from. She was raised in Carlsbad, New Mexico. She was orphaned twice, first by her mother and father when she was young. And then when she was adopted, her adopted mother passed away when she was a teenager. And she basically was sent out of the house and had to hit the road with my father. They both were traveling evangelists and he was itinerant. She married him, my preacher father, who was also an orphan. They had six kids. I am one of them. You're welcome, America. And though she was widowed at 49, she earned a master's degree in early childhood education and she started to write children's books. Yeah. Oh, and here are her hobbies. She likes macrame, tea cakes, and Dr. Pimple Popper. Yeah. But, you know, I was talking to my mom about our reparations journey and the privilege game, the game that we did when we were in front of Grant's tomb and we would ask each other questions and, you know, you'd go forward and then I would end up staying back and, mm -hmm. you know, you were halfway up the block because you're white and male and privileged and all the other good stuff you get from being in the book of Dow. But anyway, <laughs> I asked her, what were her thoughts about white privilege and or just privilege in general? Well, I'm certain that there is white privilege. Anytime one group can make laws and enact them to benefit themselves, whether they're white or whatever their color, if they can benefit them to themselves and use them to deny other people their equality, then of course that's privilege. And in America, that happens to be primarily white privilege. White privilege. That's really America's origin story, right? And what it's so interesting listening to your mom talk about this is that the idea of white privilege means something very different in 2021 than it did when she was a child. And back then, I think white privilege was just white people doing their thing. Yeah, they were doing their thing and they still are doing their thing. Well, anyway, my mother starts reminiscing. She's talking about her life, how she grew up even told me stories about my life as a child. It was pretty cool. Yeah, our origin stories, the ones that our family tells us about ourselves, about our family, our history, they're so important because they kind of help us think about how we're going to chart our way through the world, that we're sort of carrying this story with us as we go. Yeah, it's nature versus nurture. Think of America as this big oak tree with these deep roots and we fed it and we're putting fertilizer and watering it. But, you know, we are judged by the fruit it bears, you know. And so I think now we're we're getting a load of types of um, juicy stuff that's fallen off of it. But here's what I'm thinking. We've had a lot of fun, Whitney. It's now time to get down to the nitty gritty and talk about how to make reparations. That's epic stuff. We're dealing with high stakes. So we need to anchor ourselves to an African-American voice talking about just living, their experience. So I choose my mom. Let's see the world through Sammy's eyes. She can stand in for the community, like after Schindler's List, 
one of my favorite movies. Spielberg created a committee to take down the stories of the survivors of the Holocaust. So she'll tell her story, whatever she wants. And we get to know her and then build out from there. And my mom's a rock. She can take it. Meanwhile, we'll check in with Dr. William Darity and former presidential candidate and billionaire Tom Steyer and Mayor Karen Weaver of Flint, Michigan. Yeah, that's good. We'll talk with them and find out how to make reparations. What do you say, Whitney? I think it's a good plan. We, you know, we've spoken to economist William Darity before, and he has a lot of interesting things to say about reparations. But all three of those people have been really at the forefront of the thought process around this. But the thing I like best about this plan, Erica, is I think everybody would benefit from just spending a little time seeing the world through your mom Sammy's eyes. When you're a little kid and you're walking down the street or on a bus and somebody comes up to you for no reason at all, looks you in the face, a white person, and says, you know, that little girl would be cute if she wasn't so black. I mean, why? Why would you address a child in that way? It's nothing. It added nothing to me. It wasn't making me feel better. Why would you go out of your way to insult someone in such that way? Did that happen to you, Ma? Yes, plenty of times. Yeah, it's interesting. What can happen to you when you're just living? I can't even comprehend a story like that, Erica. I think about what's in people's hearts and how they live in the world. Mm. And I'm trying to imagine, understand what's happening inside someone that they would feel they could say that to a young child. Yeah. You know, I think about a lot, Erica, about this idea of what makes people empathetic and what makes people hard. And, you know, I did a lot of interviews for the Whiteness Project, and I really couldn't find a correlation. The only correlation I could find, like it wasn't about money, it wasn't about a privation, it wasn't about anything that I thought, oh, someone was raised this, they would have this experience. It was really about true self-reflection. And the people could actually reflect on their experience in the world were people that could actually be empathetic. So, you know, someone who I think about a lot in this way is somebody we've talked to, uh, Tom Steyer, who made billions of dollars, has pledged to give it all away, and ultimately sold out of his hedge fund, uh, became a philanthropist, and even ran for president recently. I wonder if he has enough money to remake the minds of that type of human. That's a lot of money, Erica. But we're going to have to. We, you know, making reparations means we have to remake our minds. Cat Taylor and I started a bank 15 years ago, partially to redress the systemic racism in the financial system and the banking system in the United States that specifically addressed economic justice, environmental sustainability, and supported businesses owned by women and people of color because there was systemic attempt to shut those people out of ownership of wealth in this country. And that's what redlining was. Don't lend to black people. It's against the rules of our bank to lend to blank people. So we're going to draw a red line around African-American neighborhoods and you can't lend in there, which shut black people out of home ownership, which is the basic wealth creation historically for American citizens. If you talk to my African-American friends who are business people, I have a much harder time getting business loans, which means you're shut out of the private sector's wealth creation of being an entrepreneur and building your business in terms of ownership. And so we started a bank from scratch 15 years ago. It's now over a billion dollars in assets. And it's basically we measure every loan 
not just on whether it's profitable because we need to be profitable so we can continue in business, but also what is the impact on the community in terms of job creations, in terms of who owns the bank, in terms of sequestering carbon. And if you can't do that, then that's not a loan for us. And we wanted to prove that you can do that and be profitable, that actions have to be taken, not just to be fair within the bank, but to redress the longtime deep racism of the banking system and actually be, you know, not trying to be fair, but to be specifically pointing out the people who've been discriminated against and trying to give them the opportunities that have been systemically taken away from them. So say there's more of these types of institutions that pop up and there's a different way to sort of assess people's credit worthiness and they're not judged by that. They can come in and say, I'm black. Can I get a loan? And they said, yes, you qualify. You know, <laughs> you know that's what people are kind of wanting because they're saying, look, I spent my life being beat up by all these things that are coming at me. I have no way to sort of convince people that I'm a good bet. Is my black skin enough to say, y'all owe me a shot? What's the shot look like? Some people say, look, just write me a check first. Write me a check. Do you think that's part of it? Obviously, in education, mental health, those types of things, you say housing, stability. Can people also just get a check? This is the point of the study, Erica, because I recognize every single one of the areas that you're looking at, and I know that they're all subject to possible solutions. So that, you know, you were talking about education. I mean, one of the things I pushed for when I was running for president was a huge increase in the money devoted to historically black colleges and universities, because I felt as if here is a very specific and successful lifeline to people who've been discriminated against that's being relatively starved for public money and yet has succeeded in producing, you know, way disproportionate numbers of successful professional African-Americans across the country. And I said, it's a system that works. It's a system that exists. Why don't we make it a lot better funded and a lot bigger to give people an equal opportunity to see how far they can go? And in general, when you talk about a systemic change in society, and particularly one that's centered around values and justice, the appropriate place for that is the government, the human embodiments of the will of the people. This is not something that I think should be voluntary. It's not something that I think we're hoping people will do because we're hoping, you know, that they'll acknowledge this individually. This is something that has to be organized through the government. There's no doubt about that in my mind. So when I think about how this is going to be actually enacted, both studied, decisions made, and then carried out, I believe that has to be, in effect, the will of the people, people who have gotten that imprimatur of saying, you have a right to do this, you represent the will of your constituents, and therefore that's how it's going to happen. First of all, I don't think it'll happen otherwise. Second of all, I don't think it's appropriate for it to happen otherwise. I think that is what a democracy looks like. That is what this democracy is supposed to look like. And if this is going to happen, that's the only way I believe that it has the authority and the clear intent that it speaks for everybody. You know, when there's a chance to stand up for what's right, that's a chance. The whole point is to be trying to push for justice, to try and to push for the values you believe in. That's a great opportunity in life, I think. And that's how I see this. Just trying to think in the context of this conversation, is there anything that we didn't touch on that you think that white Americans should hear 
or know or ask themselves in order to understand you know, this issue. You know what I would really ask somebody on a personal level, another white American? I would say, look, we need to retell the story of America. Have you ever put yourself in the context of being somebody from another race? And if you think about slavery in America, and you think about the long time before 1865 when white people were debating it in Congress and in the White House and in elections, it would be a completely different conversation if the people who are having that conversation were themselves enslaved, if their children were enslaved, if their families were going to have something horrible happen that day. That's what I would ask white Americans to do. If that's you, not somebody else who you see as different from you, but you in the most profound sense as an American, now can we start talking about what we're going to do going forward? Now can we start talking about this history? That's the emotional courage we need as white people to be part of the solution here instead of clinging to something that, you know, clearly has been based in injustice and wrongdoing. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. When the NBA championship is on the line, every pass, every shot, and every dribble is immediately, undeniably consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, real blood, and real tears. Trust me, I know what it takes to bring home a championship ring. The regular season is tough, but these games are a completely different level. Now is the time when legacies are made. The best team will bring home the Larry O'Brien Trophy and add their name to basketball history. Will we see a battle between marquee franchises or will we see a new champion crowned? Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? These are the moments of unscripted, pure entertainment that only happen on the hardwood. You've waited all season for this. It's time to take it to the next level. Don't miss one minute of the action. Tune into the NBA playoffs on ESPN and ABC. Got my PrevNAR 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk, get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar 20. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar 20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. Hey, my name is Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it. 
and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. I got to ask the Oz question for all my friends and people who would expect me to ask. When you get there, when you pull, and when, you, when I say there, like when you've made enough money to live your life and finally get there, people think all sorts of magic happens to you, that you pull back behind the curtain and suddenly things happen. Is that what it feels like? Do you feel more empowered? Here's what I would say, Erica. So when I was 26 years old, I go to see my grandmother, who's kind of a tough old lady, to be honest. And when it was over, I said to her, you know, do you have any advice for me? And I'm thinking she's going to say, it's all about family. It's all about love. And she goes, money's more important than you think, Tom. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, really? That's what you've got for me? Money's what? And she said, there's not a lot of difference between being comfortably off and being rich. But there's a gigantic difference, Tom, between being poor and being comfortably off. And she said, I've been all three. I know what it is to be poor. I know what it is to have to figure out how to cobble together bus fare to get across town. So in answer to your question, Eric, I think there is a huge difference between being comfortably off and feeling safe about healthcare and rent and food and education, you know, the basics for a family. And having to worry about every single one of those on a daily, constant grind about it. how are you going to deal with those? But I don't think there's a lot of difference between being comfortably off and being rich. I really don't. You know, Erica, we talk a lot about white allies and what they can do. And I think one of the most interesting things that Tom touches on is actually thinking about what it would mean if we could see the world through black eyes or we could actually experience it, that the policies that we have would fundamentally be changed. If the paradigm was different and if white people could truly see what it was like to live in the world as black Americans, the policies that we have just, they simply wouldn't exist. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. But it wouldn't be interesting as if they could see what it's like to live in the world in their white existence. I guess, because I keep thinking it can't be that pleasurable. If the uh, community is fixated on oppression of people with darker skin and larger noses and bigger lips and woolly hair. Imagine if somebody could step out of themselves and say, are we really just focusing on that? Am I going to spend my day and my time pushing against that? That's, that's nuts. But you know, I like Tom Steyer a lot and I really appreciate him because I think he's proof positive that biology is not always destiny. I know Freud wrote that about women, but he's going against once you get to have a certain amount of money, you're supposed to be a certain way, you know, gain more money and, and build buildings and put my name on them. But no, he's not doing that. And part of the reason why people come here is because they believe in the American dream. You're supposed to be able to achieve your dreams and there's supposed to be a level playing field. But we all know the dream machine is rigged and it certainly has a bias for vanilla covered and testosterone. So, you know, it's tough, but he's making it more chocolatey. Bless him. Speaking of rigged system, my mother told me a story about when I was a child in fourth grade, how she had to go to my school to confront a teacher who had changed my grades to a lower grade because he wanted to advance a white child instead of me. And she confronted him. I have to start the year before. Uh, you had had a teacher, I think it was third grade. She and I had gone to the same church. She was white. 
and we had gone to the same church, and she was just in awe of you all the time. She was telling me, Erica did this in school or whatever, and I would go to your teacher's meeting. I had seen all of your reports, your grades and all, and you were in her gifted group. And uh, the next year, she moved away. You moved to the next grade. And this teacher was uh, actually Hispanic, but at that time, most of the time when people wrote what race you are, if they were Hispanic, they usually wrote just white. His name was Mr. Vega. Yes. But anyway, you were in Mr. Vega's room. And when it came time for a teacher-parent conference, I went, and here were all of the grades that I had seen with your former teacher, which had been written in ink. She had recorded your grade like you had made, say, 97 on a particular test, the math part or the whatever part in, in the uh, area. Of, of the focus of the test was written and the grade beside it. Well, on his recording, this is a record that's going to follow you through elementary school. So each year is recorded on the same test for those same areas. And your last year grade now have been marked out with a, just a line across the uh, grade and then there's something penciled in that's last. And he's telling me that he is going to send you to the group mentally educable. And I said, what? Why? What are you doing? I also knew the teacher there because I uh, did work back and forth in the school and was very well known in that school. And uh, also never missed a parent conference. So I had known the teacher who taught that group. And I said, well, why would you be sending Erica there? And he said, well, look at her test scores. And I said, those are not Erica's test scores. And by the way, you do know that her teacher last year and I had a very close relationship. So anyway, we established all of that. And I asked him, why are these grades change here? I saw this original grade. I've never missed a parent-teacher meeting. And I know that Erica was in the gifted class. So how now? She hasn't had a brain injury or nothing has happened that's changed her situation. Why are you trying to convince me that she needs to go to the mentally educable group? That's not my child. And, uh, of course, he and I got into some pretty heated thing here. And I ended up telling him that I would give him a month to straighten that out. And I said, then I'm going to the uh, Board of Education. And I want to understand. I said, and by the way, you do know that I have teacher training and I know what the games are. I know how teachers can uh, manipulate children's situations by changing grades so that they can advance one child over another child. And a child who was showing last year gifted, you're going to tell me with no outside uh, external interventions or anything that this child now is going to be somebody that needs special help, 
special ed, and you can't explain to me why? Do you remember that you had me come in? I was outside, and you made him apologize to me, you and Dad. Well, you know, he needed to apologize to you. And he's telling me all the things about, oh, how he liked you, and you were a likable kid, and he didn't know why, you know, you should be very happy because everybody liked you. I said, well, maybe she doesn't like you, and I don't like you. And it's not about who's liking what. You are trying to hinder my child, and you're going to affect her education for the rest of her life. Ooh, that was a close call. Did you hear that, Whitney? My life was nearly derailed because my teacher, my favorite teacher, decided I was disposable. I was the only black student in his class. We were the only black family in the school. And if my mother hadn't caught it, it would have changed everything for me. I think about what all the women Robin Ruth Simmons is doing in Evanston, Illinois, and they're making reparations right now. But I know that question, and a lot of that energy needs to be put into what are they doing around education inside of that type of subject? Well, I don't know what is more distressing about that story for me, Erica, the idea that this teacher would change your grades to advance in other students or the fact that he was your favorite teacher. That's uh, really heartbreaking. When we talk about the idea of what exactly reparations are, it is about reimagining and rebuilding systems. And yeah, in Evanston, Illinois, not only are they paying reparations to some of their black residents, they're also trying to reimagine the school system. And I think like a lot of places around the country, they're looking at tracking and testing. And I think there, they're completely eliminating tracking and AP classes because they see so many of the times that it leaves black students behind while at the same time advancing white students. So I think when you talk about how do you make reparations, you have to have an imagination that sort of probes into every part of our society. And someone who's thought a lot about this, actually, how do you functionally create reparations? What are the things that go into do it is economist William Darity. I think about the ways in which reparations might impact the American community writ large, which obviously includes Americans who are black and white, Americans who are of other ethnic and racial backgrounds. And I think if America is going to actually fulfill its ambition as being a truly democratic society that is open to providing every one of its citizens with the capacity to fully participate in national life and social life, and to make their deepest contributions to the entire American community, that that's going to require a dramatic and bold step like a reparations project for Black American descendants of U.S. slavery. Otherwise, the, the nation as a whole will continue to lose a wellspring of talent that remains untapped and in many cases repressed. You know, from the standpoint of the reparations plan that we describe and from here to equality, we're not thinking that any individual white person owes a debt to the black community. We are thinking that the United States government is the culpable party. It's the culpable party because it is the United States government that established the laws and the authority framework that permitted all of these atrocities to take place and in many instances sanction the atrocities. I mean, it's the federal government that permitted slavery to be something that was treated as a legal practice in the United States. 
It's the federal government that's responsible for the legal framework that produced uh, nearly a century of legal segregation in the United States. So what I would hope would be the responsibility that would be borne by white Americans is to take a political position that is in favor of a reparations plan. But the financing and the execution of the reparations plan has to be something that's conducted by the federal government, because it's the federal government that bears the responsibility ultimately. How could the government pay this? I'm an advocate of a number of social programs that are somewhat dramatic, including a proposal like baby bonds, which is to provide an endowment for each newborn infant, every newborn infant in the United States that is calibrated on the basis of their family's wealth. But programs that are universal or should reach all Americans will not accomplish the goal of eliminating the racial wealth differential. And that's the task of a reparations project. That should be done by making uh, direct payments to all of the eligible recipients in the same way in which uh, reparations plans in the past have made direct payments to eligible recipients. A couple of major examples that come to mind are the uh, German government's payments that were made to the victims of the Holocaust. Another example closer to home is the 1988 Civil Liberties Act that provided payments to the Japanese Americans who were unjustly incarcerated during the course of World War II. They were subjected to a form of mass incarceration. There are other instances where reparations have been given, and not necessarily when the donor is uh, responsible for the harm. So in the U.S. context, the United States government made payments to the families that lost loved ones during the course of the 911 terrorist attacks. And those were, again, direct payments. So I think there should be uh, nothing different about the way in which it's done for Black Americans. If the issue is how is it financed, then I would argue that it will be financed or it should be financed in much the same way that overnight the federal government came up with huge sums of money to try to address the coronavirus crisis. But there has been no increase in taxes. So the federal government can fund virtually anything it wants. I think we've been consistent in saying that the only significant barrier to additional federal spending is the possibility of triggering inflation. So you would have to design any new expenditure program in such a way that you're conscious of that and that you structure it so that it minimizes the possibility of triggering high rates of inflation of prices in the U.S. economy. You know, Erica, I find Darity really fascinating because of his specificity. He has such clear ideas, whether you agree with him or not, he has really clear ideas about who should get reparations and how they should be structured, what they should be. And, you know, a lot of times this makes, I think I've said this to you before, but it makes me relieved I'm white. Like I have the simple job that's advocating for reparations. The actually, how you do it, what are the mechanics for it? You know, I'm lucky that I believe that white people shouldn't have a say in that. So that's on you. You're going to have to figure that out. 
<laughs> well, uh, you guys got a big job because, you you know, we need more white people to help make this happen. But, you know, Whitney, as I was talking to my mother, I realized that I'm not experiencing her fresh out of the oven. You know, she's a little hardened. She's gone through a lot. And um, her answers reflect that. Once again, I, you know, not only can I, do I often say, like, I can't possibly pretend that I could imagine what it's like to live in the United States as a black American. I can't possibly, I really can't possibly imagine what it was like to live as a black American 80 years ago. Oh, no. And she is 80 years old. And so she's absorbed a lot of disappointments and challenges in her life, more than most people I know. Miss Sammy is battle-tested. You know, her remedy, her default setting is, Lord, give me the strength. I mean, we we talk about that, but I see why they needed the strength. And, and it takes a while to get through that buffalo stance. You know, she's a real sweetie, but she's very tough. And when it comes to herself, she doesn't know the difference between ouch and pain. She just keeps moving. She experiences disadvantages and challenges so often it becomes de rigueur, you know, plan for the worst, full stop. And it's like she knows if you walk with a pebble in your shoe long enough, it'll burrow into your heel, settle in, and become part of your soul. She has no memory of when that pain fused with her normal senses. She just accepts the pain in her heel as payment due for walking. And that's Black people, so many Black people every day because of their race. That's what they go through. And it's deceptive because it's disguised as plain old ordinary American life and repackaged as the American dream. Like you're here, you're part of the American dream and it's supposed to feel that way. But it's painful. One example, Erica, is the people in Flint, Michigan. You know, their American dream turned into an American nightmare when the politicians in Flint during a budget crisis decide to get the water supply that was coming from Michigan, they shifted it over to the Flint River. And that literally poisoned the majority black community in Flint. Mayor Karen Weaver was in leadership during that period, and it became her job to make sure that both the state of Michigan and the federal government made things right. I remember saying, if there's not a check for Flint, I won't be there because I'm trying to get what uh, you know and everybody else knows we deserve. And it was so amazing to me because this was something that wasn't just documented in Flint or the state of Michigan. This was documented across the country and the world, what had gone on. And so I've got to try and, you know, continue to speak up and speak out for Flint. Right now, you had to say you were either going to accept the settlement as is, you're satisfied with it the way it is, or you could say, I want to be part of the settlement, but I'm objecting, or I want no parts of anything. So I opted in. I said, I want to be part of this settlement, but I want to object. And that's one of the objections is the attorney's getting more than the victims. The most that a victim will get is if they lost a loved one to legionnaires. If they were 49 and younger, they'll get 1.5 million. 50 and older, the amount you get goes down to $300,000. So they've put a value on people's lives and they put a cap on property damage of $1,000. Which is absurd. Which is absurd. I mean, people's water heaters were damaged, uh, dishwashers, refrigerators, $1,000 cap. What can you do with that? Not much. 
It is absolutely absurd. That's another objection. One of the other objections is the documentation. There is so much documentation you have to have. Uh, you know, the, the more documentation you have, I guess the more money you get. However, a lot of the, the testing that needed to be done wasn't even available, not only in Flint, but the state of Michigan. They've just started getting the access to the testing available to us within the last month. So people have to opt in and object. So there is a fairness hearing that is in July and we go before the judge who will hear the objections. The judge has said she will listen to, you know, however long it takes to hear the objections of the people. So we had to have everything in by last Monday and now we wait. You know, one of the things we've always said is what happened in Flint happened as a result of race and class. And I've always told people Flint wasn't about water and it wasn't about infrastructure. Those were the symptoms of this underlying racism, the systemic racism. And this and this payment is reflective of that. You know, we said this is another slap in the face to the residents. And, and this payment is reflective when, you know, when you look at the payments I just brought up, you know, and you, and you say the, the amount for the amount, the number of people. And then you say, now, how'd Flint get this? And why do they keep saying this is such a great deal when we know it's not? But I'll tell you, if we were a different persuasion, a different complexion, or a different socioeconomic status, this would not have happened. I think some people have gotten worn down. You know, they're just tired. Mm -hmm. I've heard some people say anything is better than nothing. And that's a sad place to be. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. When the NBA championship is on the line, every pass, every shot, and every dribble is immediately, undeniably consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, real blood, and real tears. Trust me, I know what it takes to bring home a championship ring. The regular season is tough, but these games are a completely different level. Now is the time when legacies are made. The best team will bring home the Larry O'Brien Trophy and add their name to basketball history. Will we see a battle between marquee franchises or will we see a new champion crowned? Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? These are the moments of unscripted, pure entertainment that only happen on the hardwood. You've waited all season for this. It's time to take it to the next level. Don't miss one minute of the action. Tune into the NBA playoffs on ESPN and ABC. Got my PrevNA 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us, wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic, and at higher risk? Get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, 
playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. What do you think is needed to heal? And by the way, you are a psychologist, so I'm very interested on the psychological damage and the repair of that. And what do you think needs to happen? The money needs to come and it needs to be more money. We want more than charges. We want convictions. We want health care mm-hmm. for the residents here. and We want it to follow them no matter where they go. We want access to college and trade school for the people. We need to look at a small business and entrepreneurship and putting some equity there. So we need different kinds of programs and services and resources put in place if you want to try and make Flint whole. But starting with a deserving, a fair, just amount of money, plus all of those other things that we should have access and opportunity for. Mayor Karen, what have you learned about human nature from this experience? Sometimes you just really expect people to do the right thing and you can't. One of the things I always talk about is never underestimating the power of your voice and don't let anybody take it. You know, I I was listening to you and Whitney. I think one of the questions you all have been posed was, you're talking about reparations. Do you think it will happen? You weren't sure when it would happen, if it would happen or when it would happen. But one of the things is, You don't stop talking about it. You don't stop demanding what is right. You don't stop speaking up for what is right and putting Mm -hmm. that information out there because as soon as you do that, you have been defeated. And there are so many ways to be worn down as a human and as a Black person. And I've just really learned how strong we are here. I think people have thought we'd go away. People thought we wouldn't still be speaking up and still fighting. But one thing I've always said is I'd rather show up for the fight and lose than to not show up. And that's what we're doing, because I think we do recognize that this isn't just about us. I mean, we're impacted. We know what we deserve. We're fighting for other black and brown communities. And we have said, use us for that, because we know this should never happen anyplace else. And it's just showed me what strength and resilience and courage and determination will do. But it also lets you see how easily worn down we can get as well. And that's what people want to see. That's what people want to have happen. We want you to be quiet. We want you to be tired. We want you to go away. I can't do it. But wherever you are, you can make a difference and your voice can be heard. And that's what we have to show people. She's phenomenal. I just love her. Karen Weaver. She was mayor then and from where she is now, she's still working hard to repair her city. But again, we're talking about the loss of trust and the betrayal of a system that said you are disposable and not even worthy of clean water. You know, I sat in a room, Whitney, with women from Flint who lost their family members to disease from that crisis. What do you say to them? Making repairs and reparation and restitution won't heal their heart, won't bring their loved one back, won't heal Black people's hearts. There's not enough money in the world to do that. It's like 
the great Al Green saying, courtesy of Barry and Robin Gibb, how can you mend a broken heart? How can you stop the rain from falling down? What makes the world go round? They knew they gave it to a brother to sing that song because they weren't just talking about love lost. They were talking about something deeper than that. Don't you wonder sometimes, Erica, that the idea of outcome is focused on too much as opposed to just the act of, like the act of trying to make reparations? I think you're right. I don't know what actually would heal black Americans, and I don't know what would actually heal white Americans either. I think it's a really complicated place that we're in, but I think in some ways it's a leap of faith. It's a leap of imagination. You have to take the step that you know is right, regardless of the consequences. That's true. But I think I know a little bit about what would heal black and white and brown and all colors in between. It's and justice for all, liberty and justice for all. When we started our adventure, I told you that reparations would be too late for my mother to benefit from. And um, that's unfortunate because she deserves it. But talking with her and just listening to her stories, when they finally start talking about how to do this, the making and the repair toward this deliberate injury, the most care and attention should be to create a salve, a balm to soothe the broken hearts of a lost people who feel stateless and are exhausted and tired of talking about all this stuff. And this salve, it, it, it's going to need to penetrate and detoxify the hardened shell of many white people and how they've been raised in this immoral, wicked stew for so long. Now, that said, I, I asked my mom the question that we've been asking everybody that we've been talking to throughout this journey. Do you think there should be reparations, and do you think we'll get them in our lifetime? I'll answer the second part first. No, I don't think you'll ever get them. I think you may get portions or partial. I think America cannot face its own darkness in its own soul to the point that it can say, yes, they keep telling themselves especially since Barack Obama, the quintessential, I say, African-American, 50% both ways. Since he made it, that's what they put up in our face. But their souls are so darkened, so deadened, so weak, that they can't say, yes, this squarely is on us. We owe loads of minorities. Look what they can do to the Indians for years. They give them a little bit of land and, oh, yeah, now we've done them right. No matter that you've taken back a large part of it or you've broken treaties after treaties that you almost decimated a large percentage of their tribes. No, I don't think America is ever going to be morally that strong, morally that just. But I think we will get like little, like the puzzle, a little piece here, a little piece there. And every time they put a little piece, they will try to use that for justification as to being enough. How much more do they want? We want the whole plate. Why shouldn't we have the whole plate? You want the whole plate. I once said to a white minister at a Lutheran church that hired us to do social uh, ministry, how come you want so much for you and so little for me? 
Why is that? What is it about your soul, your being? Why is it that you can't see me as a full human being? If you've got a bowl full, why wouldn't I want a bowl full? What's different about me? I don't live in a different life. I don't have less bills or have a, a handout that says I only have half a need. I have a full need. And the more, if you are just and thinking righteously, you would know the more self-sufficient I am, the more productive I can be, the more we both benefit. Why can't you get that? That's a doctrine of wholeness, of true health, of true humanity. Why can't you see it? Next time on Reparations, the Big Payback. If you are going to have reparations for everybody, then one, you're not talking about the wealth gap and the disparities and getting rid of it. And I have no problem with everybody getting something. What I do have a problem with is not directing targeted funds toward black people who are slave descendants, who we know that right here in the United States were the ones to suffer and to be used to prop up capitalism all these years. So anybody who was a slave here in the United States and is a descendant of a slave here in the United States ought to get reparations other people can argue for their own. This podcast is produced by Eric Alexander, Ben Arnon, and Whitney Down. The executive producers are Charlemagne the God and Dolly S. Bishop. The supervising producer is Nicole Childers, and the lead producer is Devin Maddock Robbins. The producer writer is Cerise Castle, and the associate producer is Kevin Pham, with additional research support provided by Niall Bloss. Original music by DJ DTP. Reparations The Big Payback is a production of Color Farm Media, iHeartRadio, and the Black Effect Podcast Network in association with Best Case Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. Every pass, shot, and dribble is immediately consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, blood, and tears, real legacies. Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? You already know when and where to find these moments of unscripted, pure entertainment. Don't miss one minute of the action. Tune into the NBA playoffs on ESPN and ABC. Got my PrevNA 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us, wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic, and at higher risk? Get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar 20. 
Prevnar20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.